Well, our sermon series concluded last week, and uh, we had a great time going through Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Now we are stepping into the next few weeks of open topics. The preacher gets to choose what they want to preach on. Today's message, as you can see, I've chosen the title, Not Ashamed. And we'll be looking in 2 Timothy chapter 1 if you want to open your Bibles and prepare to follow along. And we won't be using the screen a lot today. I do have the passage ready for us when we get there. Um, but we'll be mostly just listening and, uh, and uh, exploring, jumping around the Word of God together. Today I want to encourage us, encourage us to move forward in our faith, to find freedom from the things that are holding us back, and uh, to, to follow Jesus more closely. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we have together, this short time of the gathered church. Please use this time to build us up and encourage us so that we can be sent forth into the world for the rest of our week as followers of Jesus. For our faith does not reside only in this one short hour in the week, but you will go with us by your Holy Spirit every hour of every day. We thank you for the Word of God, that you would use it this morning, speak through me, into, directly into our hearts, Lord, and draw us to you. Amen. Peter was from South Sudan and converted to Christianity as a child, growing up to become a pastor in the Presbyterian Evangelical Church. He went to Khartoum during the Civil War. Another Christian, Michael, was a pastor's son who fled to Uganda when the war broke out. He later returned to Khartoum with his wife and children. In Khartoum, a sermon Michael preached at the Bahari Evangelical Church was recorded and turned over to officials who arrested him. Upon hearing that his fellow Christian worker had been arrested, Peter went to see if he could help Michael and was also arrested. Peter recalls, I was taken into a darkened cell. The only contact I had with anybody was when food was passed to me through a very small opening in the door. They would blindfold me to take me to interrogations. When the blindfold was removed, I would find four soldiers with guns pointed at me. Michael was placed in a cell so crowded the inmates had to sleep in shifts. When he tells the story, he doesn't complain. On the contrary, he says, this was a perfect evangelism opportunity. Both pastors were then transferred together to hot and crowded cells where they had an opportunity to get Bibles and preach. Finally, they were relocated to death row for offending Islamic beliefs. Since nothing more could be done to them, they lived up to the charges, leading other death row inmates to Christ. Peter and Michael were called into court a final time, knowing they would either be released or executed, but feeling at peace with either outcome. They were living this biblical passage. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Philippians 1, 20. 
Eventually, both men were released, which they are astonished that that happened. Persecution is very real for many Christians in many places in the world. They are faced with a decision. Stand up for their faith despite the consequences or renounce or completely hide their faith. Every Christian ultimately faces that same question. We do as well, though not with much threat of persecution here in Maple Ridge. But the first Christians definitely did. In fact, that's the type of background for today's passage. We look at Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy. So in 2 Timothy 1, we'll put this scripture up on the screen and I'll just make some comments as I go through it. This is the very first chapter of 2 Timothy and he always starts his letters with a greeting. And he basically says that the heart of it is that he's reminded of Timothy's faith, his sincere faith. And that's why it says in verse 6 where we're starting, for this reason, because I'm reminded of your faith, I remind you, Timothy, to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul is going back to his previous times with Timothy, where, the, where he started um, out on Timothy's journey as a Christian, discipling him, laying hands on him, praying for him in the start of his ministry. And then he says, which will be the most important passage, part of the passage for our time today. Verse 7, for the Spirit of God gave, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's what we're going to be encouraged by today, to remind ourselves that we have the Spirit of the living God within us, who doesn't make us shy, doesn't make us back down. But when we give over to the Spirit of God to lead us, He gives us power. He makes us unashamed of the truth that's within us. So, this makes Paul a prisoner, though, and he's writing this from prison. And he says to Timothy, he keeps going, Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So basically, he's like, it's just a given. You stand up for Jesus and you start living that life in this culture, you're going to be persecuted. There's going to be some form of suffering. There's going to be some form of consequences. But it's worth it. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That's a very important part there, too, in verse 9, where it says, yeah, just go to the next slide, not because of anything we have done. It's not our own effort that furthers the gospel. It's the power of God within us that does it. That's important, too. We'll get back to that. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel. That's what this is all circling around. The good news that Jesus Christ has destroyed death. 
He's brought victory, life and immortality, everlasting life promised. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, Paul says. That's why I'm suffering as I am. He sees the greater goal than his short life on earth. He sees Jesus' plan for the world. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know who I have believed. You know this song. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Some of you are singing, For I know whom I have believed. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. And this is what we do. This is why we preach. This is why we have Sunday services with messages and sermons from the Bible. Because what gets passed down to us through the scriptures, through the teachers, through the apostles, we have kept on teaching for thousands of years. Starts with the apostles and moves through the evangelists and the teachers, through each one of us. Do it with faith and love in Christ Jesus. We want to do this. We want to pass on the message of Jesus in love, not in judgment, not in condemnation. Jesus says he doesn't come to the world to bring condemnation, but to save. It's a message of hope and promise. And so he he finishes by saying, guard this good deposit that was entrusted to you, these gifts, this story, this, this gospel, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And we know that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, was given as a gift, as the, the encourager, the one who leads and dwells within us so that Jesus can be within us. So we focus in on that word ashamed. And of course, our message today is to encourage us to not be ashamed. But we'll just focus on the word ashamed. And as I look up the the definition for ashamed, it said to be distressed, embarrassed by feelings of guilt, foolishness, or disgrace. To feel personally humiliated. And so when it comes to our our faith, how we project ourselves to other people, what do we find ourselves ashamed of? Are we ashamed of our faith being made public for people to know that I'm a follower of Jesus? And we'll get back to that question, and we're going to take a sidestep here and talk about some of the things that get in the way, reasons why we might not act in the way that we're supposed to, why we might be ashamed. And we want to talk a little bit about pride. Pride, of course, is known as one of the deadly sins, the seven deadly sins, and it's known as being um, akin to hubris or futility. Uh, It's defined in the dictionary as high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity or your importance, or merit, or superiority. Considered the original and worst of the seven deadly sins on almost every list. So there's a quote by Jonathan Edwards that says this, Remember that pride is the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. 
It was the first sin that was ever, that was, that was ever, and lies lowest on the foundation of Satan's whole building. It's the most difficultly rooted out and the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts and often creeps in. In the midst of religion, hear this, sometimes under the disguise of humility. You would think pride, humility are opposites, right? So humility is defined as pretty much the absence of pride, a modest or low view of one's importance. We want humility. We should be humble. That's a good trait. But it's, it's, a, it's a difficult trait to obtain because if you have witnessed or, or cringed at somebody who's trying to project humility, right? Have you heard the term humble brag before? Throwing something in there to make themselves seem down, hard done by, but while promoting themselves as being particularly uh, likable or, or favorable. And what can happen is a false humility. It can happen intentionally, but it often happens unintentionally. It sneaks in, and the pride within us starts acting before we even know it. How do we know if pride is taking over, if we're acting in our own pride? If we have a false humility? Well, it can show in a few ways. It can show in us burying the gifts and talents God's given us, keeping them hidden. It can show up in avoiding calls to leadership that, that God is calling us into. It can, it can show up in um, Matthew 5, 14, 15, and 16 says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So it can show by our light being put out. You're not letting it shine. And it can show up by ignoring the authority Christ has given us in this world to lead people, to to step in and, and bring Jesus to them. But real humility looks like this. In John 3, John says, He must become greater. I must become less. That's how we actually attain humility, is not by trying to be humble, but by focusing on Jesus. So, the instruction to not be ashamed doesn't mean that we should never feel bad about anything. None of us is perfect after all. We've all done things we regret. That's our sin nature. And Paul also teaches about that in Romans 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. And you probably identify with this. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. It's no longer I myself who do it, but it's the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, 
who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the change in focus. Not focusing on himself, but on Jesus. So the answer to being ashamed is not to be prideful or to feign humility. Rather, it's to recognize who we are, who our Lord is, and follow him. And a better antonym of ashamed would be boldness. We want to be bold about what we know to be the truth. Bold is described as, and I did a lot of definitions this week for some reason, but it says, showing an ability to take risks, confident and courageous. Are you feeling confident and courageous? Or are you feeling ashamed? What do we have to be ashamed of? When, when in comparison to the stories we hear of the persecution, what do we really have to be ashamed of? Are we, are we scared that the people around you won't agree with you? That they'll know you're a Christian and think less of you? They'll reject your invitation if you put it out there? Maybe we don't feel confident that we're a good witness for Christ, that we won't represent him in just the right way. I know some of us are bold. I see it for sure. There is definitely some unashamed light shining from this place. But I also think there's far too much light under a bowl going on. We're all on that journey in different places. We're all learning to follow Jesus and, and live out his call. Some starting from very far, some starting way with a lot of boldness. But let's watch one person's story um, we got to see a testimony the last time I preached, and uh, we had another volunteer share their testimony. It fit our message perfectly this week, so let's watch this testimony. My name is Diane Chesvold, and I started coming about 10 years ago. And my connection is just with the people here and the various things that I have been able to volunteer for and help with over the years that I've been here. God has changed me from a mouse, and I won't say to a lion, but I'm definitely not a mouse anymore. I was always afraid of my own shadow, afraid to speak up, afraid of what people would think of me, afraid that I would say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, and so consequently I said or did nothing. Walking in the world, um, I still believed in God, but I would say that I was a half-hearted Christian. I really wasn't walking fully with the Lord. But in the 90s, I came back and I started attending a church. And for the first two years, I spent all my time coming in with my head down. I didn't look at anybody. I didn't speak to anybody. And then I ended up um, going to a ladies' Bible study, which I found I liked, but at the same time, I didn't want to do homework. I didn't want to read out loud. I didn't want to pray out loud. And when I had to do those things, my heart would pound and I would just be scared. And But unfortunately, because of that, I didn't get any of the passage of scripture. I have no idea what was being said. I was losing it all. But slowly, slowly, God helped me with that and I was able to do that. 
And then my husband passed away in 2007, and I moved to the coast in 2008 to be close to my kids and started going to another church. Went to a life group and um, spent most of my time just listening and paying attention and attending. I was faithful at going, but I didn't want to contribute. I just listened and sort of did the, hi, how are you? And nothing much more than that. A series of things happened and I ended up leaving that church and coming here to MRAC, which I had heard very good things about. I was greeted by Dan Wanup, I do remember that, um, and attended the service and learned that there was a ladies Bible study and the following Wednesday morning I went and was at a table and found myself really enjoying it and opening up, which had something that had never happened to me before. I always held back, but God was prompting me to speak, to ask questions, to not be afraid, and he moved me along a lot. It's been encouraging to me that God wants me to speak, wants me to speak up, to give my opinion, to give my point of view, to say what he is doing, and to understand that, um, that it's not about me, it's about him. So my world at the moment is very small. I live in a condo and I don't get out much except for walks with my husband and what have you, but um, I have taken to walking the halls of my condo just on my floor pre predominantly. There are 23 units on our floor and I have taken it upon myself to pray for these people. A few weeks ago, I did have the opportunity to pray with a gentleman who was going for a test at the hospital and he was very nervous about it. And so I asked him if he would like me to pray for him. And he said, yes. And I was fully expecting a rejection, but I didn't get it. He said, yes. And so I did and I prayed and uh, he thanked me and he has thanked me many times since then for that. So it's, it's a slow building process, but I am hoping that God will guide me to be able to witness to these people and bring them to the Lord. What are we waiting for? What are we holding back for? We have the greatest truth in the world. So, another aspect of this is, yeah, we could be ashamed of people, uh, around people who don't know God, but another question I'd like to explore a little bit before we finish our time here is, can we be ashamed among other people of faith as well? Can we be ashamed right here in church or in whatever church you're going to? And I want to bring a little bit of encouragement to this area because being on, on staff here and talking to many people, I do encounter quite a few people who have a lot of baggage, and, and that's common. They have struggles, faith journeys, maybe they were part of different um, faith traditions that, that filled that baggage and gave them different ideas. And so maybe 
We struggle with things like that I've seen, such as not being able to take the step of baptism, not being able to share a testimony that, like we just saw, not feeling worthy of taking either a, a position in the church that, that someone wants you to, to step into, or not feeling worthy of God's love or the love of other people. Maybe people feel judged by somebody. Maybe people feel guilty by something leadership said. So first of all, I'd like to say that we, the rest of us, all of us, need to stop making one another feel these ways. And you can probably refer back to my two or three sermons ago when I preached on don't judge one another. You can look that one up. But we want to be careful what we say to people. Let's try not to be the reason why someone doesn't feel like coming to church anymore because something someone said to them. If you feel judged by your church, by your pastor, then we probably owe you an apology. We'd love to talk about that. On the other hand, though, the church is filled with people like you, imperfect, self-centered, looking for Jesus. If you're looking for people to fulfill everything you need, you're going to be let down at some point. Only God can fulfill everything you need. And as I said, I've encountered many people who are struggling in these areas, and I just want to speak some truths over you. You are worthy. You are worthy of God's love. Not because of anything special you can do. You can't earn it. He has done it. He has redeemed you. He has died for you. He has saved you and set you free. He loves you enough that he would go to the cross and take the burden and the punishment of your sin. And he wants you to live in that reality from now on. Another one. Whatever you're being asked to do by God, you can do it. Because he supplies the power when you choose to follow him. And here's one from Tom. Gave me this one. It's not about being ready. It's about being obedient. Obedient to God's call on our lives. So sometimes your church will ask you to do things. <laughs> You'll get a call being asked to come onto a, a a team, a serving team, a committee, or, or take a position. Maybe you don't think you're good enough for it. Maybe you don't have the time or you're not able to do it. There's so many excuses that can come up, some valid, some not. Maybe you say, let me pray about it, or I need to see if God wants me to do that. Maybe you do that and get an answer, and you move forward in one direction or another. That's, that's great. But if you just stay in that place and never move forward in any direction... Let me just say this. Your church leaders have asked you for a reason. They see something in you. They're following God's call in bringing people on to the mission of the church. This could be a good thing for you. They believe that God is leading and directing. Maybe this is how God is leading and directing in your life. Getting away from ministry positions and that sort of thing, um, we have 
communion. We have baptism, these ordinances that individually we must choose to participate in. Yet I encounter people who have difficulty even just doing these simple things. So many different thoughts and conflicting ideas going in their, in their mind. But we're simply asked to do it out of obedience. There's very little requirement to step into these things. Believing in Jesus Christ. Receiving his forgiveness by his death on the cross. Calling him our Lord and Savior and following him. That's the prerequisites for these things. So you don't become ready to be baptized. You do it out of obedience. And as we move towards communion today, there's an example of what I'm talking about. You might have heard the verse, you probably have heard the verse that says, whoever drinks, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. So examine yourself. And so out of context, what you're supposed to do, maybe you think, is think up any sins you've done recently or, or back in time and decide if any of them are bad enough that you maybe shouldn't take communion today. Have you ever experienced that type of thinking before? But this is missing the point of communion in the first place. We all have sinned. Aren't you sorry for your sin? Do you accept God's forgiveness for your sin based on Jesus' payment of death? Then this communion is for you. We put it back in the context of the passage, and Paul is basically yelling at the Corinthian church, saying, you're not practicing communion correctly. A small number of you get together and you feast on it all. You hoard it for yourselves. You don't leave enough for everyone. And he says, the bread and wine were never supposed to be your dinner. Eat at home if you're hungry. Supposed to be representing Jesus' death for sin. You're supposed to do it together. You're supposed to make it available and wait for one another. So if you do this wrong, you're bringing judgment on yourselves. That's the context. So when we read examine yourselves, yes, we are supposed to examine our lives and and ask for forgiveness for our sins. Yes. But we're not supposed to feel extra bad about something and and find ways to exclude ourselves from communion. We're supposed to make sure we believe what communion's all about. Jesus' selfless sacrifice for all who have sinned and put their faith in his payment for our forgiveness. So, fellow Christians, do not be ashamed as we approach the communion table today. Do not be ashamed as we remember Christ's death. Do not be ashamed for the work he has done and provided victory. For it says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your love for each one of us. Thank you for your provision of forgiveness through your death. That you would love each one of us so much that you would die for me. Die for for each one here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for these reminders of the greatest truth 
in the history of the world that we have. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask for boldness to live it out, to be able to talk about it, share it, and have others encounter you, come to know you through us. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's take communion together, shall we?